Where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountains, like wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills, into shadow. This is my brother, my captain, my podcast. How did it come to this? Shyam, a wizard should know better. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Last March of the Ents, where our business is with Isengard tonight with Rock and Stone. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. Friends, Romans, and countrymen, lend me your ears. (laughs) Actually, I just need your ears, Emily. Uh, Question for you. Is William Shakespeare good? Mm, Yes. Uh, but yes, friends, dumbly (laughs) instead of yes, friends, smartly. Understood, understood, (laughs) understood. Uh, So today we are going to be talking a little bit about our pal Willie Shakes, Um, (laughs) William Shakespeare to those who are unfamiliar, and obviously someone that basically anyone who's ever studied the English language or just encountered the English language (laughs) has probably um, had to deal with in some form or another. Um, So first, let me just ask you, since you do not have like the traditional American schooling that I did, um, what is your relationship to Shakespeare like going up through school and even now as an adult? Oh, God. Um, So I okay. so this is all going to be colored by the fact that I was like undiagnosed ADD and also a massive shithead when I was in school. So like we definitely did a decent chunk of Shakespeare. I'm just trying to remember. I don't think I had it until I was in middle school and then I was in England for that. And in England, oh fuck, we went to the Globe Theater. I was at school in London uh, and we went to the, oh, the Globe cool. Theater because they do this like program. I don't know if they still do it because it's like mm, uh, redacted number of years ago. Uh, but they did um, <laughs> They did a program where they would bring in local schools and then they would do like shortened versions of the like the classic Shakespeare's. I know they're all classic, but like I think we went and saw uh, a Midsummer's Night Dream, probably something like that. It, one of the ones I don't love that much. Uh, so I, I think I saw that, and like most of my um, uh, like experience, I guess, of Shakespeare around that point was the Horrible History series, which I'm not sure if they like got much traction in the U.S. I kind of think they did, but that could just be me misremembering things badly. But like they're these cutesy fun books uh, that go through the, you know, there's like the terrible tutors, the like violent Victorians or something. But, you know, they're, they're cutesy ways of introducing um, kids uh, to predominantly British history. Um, and mm-hmm. there's a good bit, I think, in the terrible tutors about uh, Shakespeare. And, and that was kind of the like arm's length at which we did that. And then I got back to the States. And it was American public school that really layered on the Shakespeare heavy, which I think is kind of counter the stereotype. I don't know. People have it. People seem to have it in their heads that like Shakespeare is not a public school thing here, um, a state school thing here. Anyways, uh, so we did like all through. So I did English for all four years of high school, varying degrees of unsuccess. Uh, and I think we did like, again, the really kind of classic ones like we did Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth. 
Hamlet, I think. I don't even remember what we did in senior year because I never showed up to English class. Um, but it was always like this very kind of clinical approach to Shakespeare. I do have to give credit to my ninth grade or maybe 10th grade English teacher because she showed us Baz Luhrmann's R&J when we were doing Romeo and Juliet. And, and that was really mm -hmm. helpful for keeping our attention. But like, other than that, I do remember it being like a massive slog and kind of one of these things where I was like, I don't immediately understand the words on the page in front of me. Therefore, I'm checking the fuck out and all of this is boring. And I think it was just like, uh, I was also kind of part of the second or third generation of students to get hit real bad with the um, no child left behind stuff and these standards mm. of learning, which we had in Virginia, which is even dumber somehow. Uh, and, and so like, I think Shakespeare was always kind of presented as this like, uh, weirdly distinct. Like I had, I felt like I could understand and engage with like the literal Odyssey better than I could with Shakespeare because Shakespeare <laughs> felt like this kind of like Oxbridge elite sort of thing that that like was taught in a way that sucked, and that was just because Shakespeare generally sucked. Um, and it wasn't until I got much older and and into uni that I like had a shakeup of my um approach to Shakespeare. But I guess in that sense, it is kind of like classically. American in some ways because it was just like well I mean I don't know how you had it but like it, it was like for us it was like a thing that this was you kind of go through the motions of doing like as the average the average kid in class goes through the motions of doing and then the really smart kids will like maybe have some higher interest in it but like it's really something you don't actually engage with like on a on a kind of personal level it doesn't really click with you until you're in college so it, when you're in school you're just kind of surviving it I mean was that kind of what it was like for you <laughs> Uh, I think that's an accurate portrayal of what it was like for like my high school and the people in my uh, like suburbs, surrounding suburbs uh, who went to similar high schools. Um, I happen to be one of those smart kids uh, who like got the AP advanced teachers. Uh, and I'm also, as you may know, um, somewhat clumsily a big fan of words and being super cutesy with words. Um, so like Shakespeare is someone who definitely speaks to me. Um, I'm going to go through a little bit of my like schooling on Shakespeare. And if you ask me who my two favorite teachers are, it was my eighth grade English and lit teacher. And then my sophomore year of high school English and lit teacher, who was also my senior year English and lit teacher. And between the two of them, they like really taught me to appreciate Shakespeare, but also just like poetry and writing and meter and rhyme and all that stuff. Um, so I was like one of those people who actually was like super nerdy about Shakespeare. Um, like as soon as we read Hamlet senior year, I'm like, yep, this is my favorite story of all time. Nice. And I still basically say that to this day. It's either that or the fugitive. Uh, so it's like I just like glopped onto it like completely. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is in part because while I was studying this stuff in high school, there was like an explosion it seemed like of shakespeare shakespearean based media like in terms of movies and television shows the uh, you universe. mentioned <laughs> yes the scu <laughs> uh which is not a law and order spinoff <laughs> but like you mentioned Baz Luhrmann's romeo and juliet um which on top of just being i think a fantastic film like it's such a great like teenager film because obviously mm -hmm. this is like leo and claire danes at the height of their power um like john Mazzano, i think <laughs> seth green is in there yep. um it's just like a great cast a uh, very very young paul rudd um oh is there God, too yeah. as paris um the minute you see Leo, it literally starts a Radiohead song. Uh, and this was about the time like I was getting into Radiohead. So it's like you had me, you know, from hello. Uh, and then we also like 
we would learn that, oh, the Lion King was based on Hamlet. Um, we had Kenneth Branagh do his big Hamlet. And then we also had 10 Things I Hate About You, um, which I am not going to talk about at length because I know that <laughs> one's a big film for you. So uh, when did you actually see 10 Things I Hate About You? Um, oh, God. So I think I must have been 15 or 16, maybe slightly younger, maybe 14 or 15, because I definitely shaped my personality in high school around Cat. I, like maybe it was like a more dialectical process than that, but like you know, I wasn't trying to be her, but I was like I was already her, and definitely already her. Like there are literal articles in the Washington Post confirming the extent to which I was literally cat um, at, at my high school, um, for better or for worse. Um, and um, I definitely watched that movie and was like, holy shit, uh, this I get. This is something I vibe with. And I, I was also still quite into the West Wing at that point. So Allison, Janney doing whatever the fuck she is doing in there was just like spectacular. Um, but it, oh God, I can't remember the girl's name, the Shakespeare loving girl. This is awful. I love that movie so much. It's like my favorite movie of all time. I can't remember her name. Anyways, Kat's friend who is big into Shakespeare. Um, I did not have my like come to Jesus moment with her. I think until I was actually in uni, I was always kind of in high school. I was always more focused on, on cat and like being like, yes, good. It is good to be a cringe feminist. And it is. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't until I got into university and watched it again for several times that I was like, God, that girl, the girl who's really into Shakespeare. Like I originally just thought she was a bit cringe cause she was like overly earnest. But I had this moment where I was like, she's actually really cool because she, she knows, so much about something that is like um that that is kind of taking it beyond just like oh uh the kind of standard lisa simpson i'm good at school and into like she is good at something that is genuinely interesting she's she's she knows a lot about something that is like widely respected for a reason and it's not just like a product of her wanting like validation from other people because we don't like see her ever be like validated in class for like knowing the most about Shakespeare it's not like she's got great grades or whatever she's just really into it and and that was like in uni in, in particular like when I was kind of pissed off about having to deal with like coursework in a totally new system like that was one of the coolest things I think I'd ever seen and that was the thing where I was like well okay if this chick can do it then like so can I and that was the point when I went back and tried to start reading Shakespeare again to slightly better success than than I did um but it is genuinely like I think representation politics are horseshit however representation Shakespeare very good uh, and that girl just being like the most kind of earnest uh and and kind of uh cringe character imaginable really opened some doors there in a way that like having to learn to talk in front of your class when you're 14 years old and iambic pentameter absolutely was not good <laughs> i get that um I, I I know I went to see this at theaters with a, like a, a mixed group of guys and girls. We were all in high school um, and it had a bunch of like, you know, quote unquote, teen heartthrobs. Um, I forget Alex Max, uh, her actual name in real life. Um, Julia Stiles. This is where I met Heath Ledger. Um, this was my first uh, Heath Ledger experience. Uh, so it was just great. Like everything about it was great. And because I was one of those, again, smart kids who kind of knew Shakespeare, like I was the one who's like, oh, that's super like cute and clever, um, which I think everyone I was with enjoyed it as well. But I th think I enjoyed it more because I'm smarter and better than them. <laughs> uh, so had um, you done I, like I Taming it. of the Shrew by that point? Or was that like your first introduction to Taming of the Shrew? Uh, so, uh, 
in freshman year of high school, we kind of had a thing where we studied Romeo and Juliet as like a class and like went through the entire play. And then we had to pick two or three other stories to kind of do on our own and do a much smaller project on. It was one I picked, but it was one I kind of cliffs noted uh, or spark. (laughs) Like it's, it's just like, I did that. And then I read a Midsummer's Night's Dream. um, And then I was like, okay, I'm kind of done with this. I do not want to read another Shakespeare play on my (laughs) own. Um, So uh, then I just like, well, I'm just going to read like the summary of it. It it was a pretty straightforward. It's because in 1998, 99, we were kind of pre-internet as it exists, even pre-Wikipedia almost. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like, you know, people could just go online and search what is the plot of Taming of the Shrew and get all their answers and stuff. So like the stuff we had to do related around such a small assignment was just like, who are the main protagonists? Where are this, you know, what is the setting? Stuff like that. Um, What are the major themes? It wasn't like super intense. So stuff you can easily bullshit with Sparks Notes or Cliff Notes or whatever the going concern is for the shortened abbreviated Shakespeare was at that point. Um, Nice. But uh, so like it kind of started in eighth grade. Um, like I said, one of my favorite teachers, uh, we didn't study a Shakespeare play in full, but we did do a big unit on poetry and we had to memorize the Macbeth speech. The, should I read, read this whole thing? God damn it. Oh my God, um, go for I'm it. not going to. Oh, sad. Uh, should, oh, okay, fine. I'll do it. Fuck <laughs> you. We're doing it live. <laughs> tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player, that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Yay, I did Nice, nice, Uh, that's so so good. (laughs) Uh, so we had to like memorize that and like oh. actually kind of do it in terms of the meter um, in which like Macbeth delivers that speech. Uh, so it was like a good way to just learn poetry and learn like parts of Shakespeare without like really studying Macbeth. Um, this teacher also did a unit on West Side Story. So we kind of got a little bit of Romeo and Juliet out of there. Nice. Um, but ultimately, um, I thank her for teaching me the beauty of meter and rhyme and what a sonnet is um because it's fun i like sonnets they're really cool yeah um, which kind of transitions into um freshman year when we studied romeo and juliet where we did the whole play like i just said um we watched parts of the old zeffirelli version oh wow um the one f- so um they did not show us the boob scene because <laughs> the actress who played juliet was 16 at the time um we also did bits and pieces of the Boz lerman version um like specifically the opening shootout at um the gas station Nice. Uh, was uh, a scene that we specifically covered. There were a couple others that we did, but we didn't watch the whole movie or anything. Uh, but it was kind of like the first time I was really starting to understand like form and function in art. Mm. Like uh, when Romeo and Juliet meet, uh, it's very famous. They speak to each other in sonnet, you know, full on with a rhyming couplet to end the entire affair. But then after that, they go into blank verse whenever Romeo and Juliet talk and do away with the rhyming and the meter. Um, And we were kind of taught that this is a way in which their love is like true and real and is not just something for the page because it's no longer flowered up. And it's because Romeo in the real beginning, when he's speaking about Rosalind, the girl he had a crush on before Juliet, (laughs) that is also in sonnet form so like once Romeo and Juliet their love transcends the forms or the boundaries that the meter was putting it in they like really like set off light bulbs in my head in terms of how to 
uh, think about like stories, I guess, or any kind of, you know, narrative art. Um, so it was just like one of those big like light bulb moments for me. Um, moving into sophomore year, this is when I had my other favorite teacher of all time, Mr. Wyman, who lived in Sandwich, Illinois. Um, I assume he's long since dead. He was an old man when I was uh, a student of his. Um, but on top of Shakespeare, this is also the teacher that taught me to love Stanley Kubrick and the Coen brothers. Nice. Um, so he's definitely the coolest teacher I ever had. But he really engendered the love of Shakespeare because when he taught us Julius Caesar, like, he had us like act it out. Like, you know, he would say like, you, Manu, you're going to be Brutus and you, Kevin, you're going to be Cassius and we're going to redo this scene or that scene or whatever. Um, and then because it was like the smart kid class or whatever, like he wouldn't suffer us to be not into it. So he's like, he would like yell. It's like, that's not real. You know, we want you guys chanting Caesar, Caesar, Caesar. Like he'd get the whole class chanting it. Um, so he like, it kind of turned into performance art for like two months straight in his class, which was just so much fun. Um, and I, it just like, it was a great way to do it. And also Julius Caesar just like kind of fit in with some of the stuff we were learning in history. So um, it, there was kind of some overlap interest, even though I'm kind of over the whole idea of ancient Rome at this point. Uh so uh, he really taught me just how to love the material itself. Um, and then when I had him again in senior year and we did Hamlet, um, he was also the one who kind of taught me the key to reading Shakespeare is finding the book with the best footnotes and the best like addendums and like explanations of all the things. Um, so it really affected how I approach Shakespeare and basically any old literature, like find the version that has like good notes on it, stuff you can easily refer to that explains stuff. Um, and that really expanded how I thought about Shakespeare. Uh, we also studied Macbeth at the time, uh, which honestly, I did not love Macbeth when I studied in high school, but I've come to love it since because of some of the movie adaptations I've seen. Um, we also, um, this was when Branagh's, ha uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet came out, was right around this time nice. we were studying. Uh, and uh, it's a four-hour movie. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a long one, so we couldn't do it during class. So he, what's it called? We had an after school kind of thing. Uh, like, you know, stay late and we'll order pizzas and do that. Nice. I could not do it because I was working that night. Oh, no. But what was I working as? A pizza delivery guy. <laughs> um, so I, so they ordered from me, like, I think like 12 extra large pizzas that I brought up. Um, I hung out with a little bit because it was like a Tuesday night. So like pizza deliveries were not like super busy that day. Um, so it was cool. Um, <laughs> that rocks. Uh, so yeah, um, so there's all of that. Um, also recently, I've read a couple books about Shakespeare, including one I'm reading now, which is just a book about his works. Like it basically is like five pages on each of his plays and long poems nice. and all that stuff. It's just nice. really cursory, um, but it just, it kind of helps to know this stuff, um, especially since I do two fantasy medieval podcasts <laughs> uh, between, it's like, oh, Titus Andronicus baked some guys into pies and served them to people. Well, that's exactly what, you know, Wyman Manderley does in A Dance with Dragons and serves them to Lord Bolton and stuff like that. So it's like all sorts of stuff that I'm able to pick up. Um, I also read Bill Bryson's book on sh just Shakespeare himself Great. called The World's a Stage. Um, and that was itself just kind of interesting because I didn't know how little we actually know about Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is triangulation. Like he, someone signed a letter that said Billy Shakes guy was here and we're just assuming they meant William Shakespeare. Um, and we kind of triangulating that, um, kind of going into how a lot of the plays credited to Shakespeare in our popular conscious, uh, Shakespeare is likely just a contributor to, um, and also the fact that, uh, 
most of what Shakespeare wrote was not as original as we think it is. Oh, God, like down no. to Romeo and Juliet was taken straight up from Latin poems that probably go back to stuff from Ovid's day. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it just is a great, just kind of like fact check because we just assume so much about Shakespeare based on his works. Um, and then we don't really have a clear picture of the guy. Like literally, like <laughs> the image people have of William Shakespeare might not even be him. Um, at just some point in history, we assumed we think this guy is Shakespeare. And now every time you see an image of Shakespeare from just his painting to uh, zombie Shakespeare in Simpsons Trials of Horror, <laughs> they all look like the same guy. Um, so it was just like very fascinating to learn that Shakespeare isn't just a guy we know about in full. Yep. It's just, we, we kind of have to piece together uh, what's left behind because he wasn't like super rich or leave a lot of his own personal journals or records behind. It's literally what other people left plus the place he left behind. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that point that you're making there about like the kind of unoriginality of Shakespeare is really interesting. And this is going to be such a clumsy segue, but like, because I think like the, 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 the fact of most of Shakespeare's shit not really being that unique in terms of the plot um, is very Tolkienian, I guess, for me, because like the Lord of the mm -hmm. Rings is not a particularly interesting or unique plot on the face of it. Like all the plot beats have been done a million times before. The same with The Hobbit, all the plot beats have been done a million times before. But like the thing that makes Shakespeare stand head and shoulders above everybody else, you know, not just like the people, you know, Edmund Spencer who are kind of playing in the same league as him at the same time, but like everybody else is his command and creation of the language of of English language, you know, like Dante is remembered not just for writing a really banging poem or series of poems, but also for creating vernacular Italian and, and putting it on the road to becoming the Italian that we know in the modern day. Um, Shakespeare is the same thing. Like Shakespeare put together the, you know, ha ha built so much of the foundation of the English language as we understand it today as, you know, the modern English language, so much of our, like, you know, so much of the, the words, the, the words and the phrases that we use in our daily lives, day-to-day -day lives are, you know, have their origins in Shakespeare in one way or another. Um, and Tolkien, I think, not quite as expansive, like not having changed the face of the English language uh, at all, but having changed fiction and how we think about fiction uh, in some ways uh, for the better and in some ways, i.e. the cinematic universes uh, for the worse. Um, and, and and the unoriginality, I think, is one of the, the things that was always lost to me. Um, and I think, you know, would have been more interesting for me, like as a kind of edgy contrarian teenager, is if um, the people who were teaching me Shakespeare had like kind of been upfront about the fact that like, Yes, it's actually very easy to go find another variant on, like a, a precursor variant of Romeo and Juliet or of Titus or of uh, or of Lear. Um, the, the things that makes Shakespeare interesting is not that the first that he was the first to do it; it's that he was in so many ways the best to do it. Because I think, like when I was a teenager, it was presented as Shakespeare was the first to write all of these things, uh, and I was like, "Well, <laughs> that's not true." Wikipedia says that's bullshit, so. <laughs> in and out from here on out. Um, and I think like, you know, maybe because I was just like an asshole teenager, maybe there was no hope. Um, but I think if I'd had it presented to me in that way of like, it's not the, it's not the foundations that are unique. It's everything that comes above that, that is unique. I think mm -hmm, that would have mm -hmm. been such a, like a, a vastly kind of more enticing way to, to, to capture my interest um, as opposed to the way that it was done. <laughs> So uh, since you are the Tolkien expert, do you want to tell me what like maybe the main Shakespearean influences we can see in Tolkien, whether as like an homage or a challenge to, um, and then maybe we can go from there? Yeah. Okay. So, th so this is interesting. So 
there's, I'm going to say, I'm going to call this a popular myth. It's, it's not really popular. Um, and it's also not really a myth. Um, but there's this popular myth that Tolkien hated Shakespeare. If this mm-hmm. is true, but, um, so, so Tolkien hated Shakespeare, but I think it's not helpful to think about, um, his dislike or ambivalence towards Shakespeare in like a kind of modern sense, or at least how I think of things. Like when I hate things, I just don't really think about them. Uh, and, and that's it. Like I, they're just not Same. a part of my life. Um, Tolkien being a philologist and, and being, uh, being a philologist at a time at which the split between English literature as an academic discipline and English language as an academic discipline was up for conversation and was up for debate. And and Tolkien, um, as a, a, a professor of philology at Oxford University, was quite literally at the epicenter of this debate. And and you know now we split English lit from English lang up as as separate studies, although not not in grade schools, but everywhere else we do. Um, that was happening when Tolkien was a professor at Oxford University. He contributed to to debates on this. This was something that he was. Keen aware of. Um, but also the fact that he was keenly aware of this debate and necessarily keenly aware of English literature writ large meant that even though he disliked Shakespeare, he was forced into such constant interaction with Shakespeare and Shakespeare's works that he was always thinking about ways to deal with his dislike of Shakespeare, whether that was, you know, subverting uh, you know, some of Shakespeare's sort of, uh, not tropes, but some of Shakespeare's plot beats, as in Macbeth. Uh, Macbeth is one of the most influential uh, 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 plays on Tolkien's writing, or whether it's um, his his kind of more um, antagonistic approach uh, to some of the the settings and the themes, you know, as we see with Midsummer, where A Midsummer's Night Dream is is the one that Tolkien I think rebels the hardest against, or this kind of middle of the road approach, which is the other the the third of the big influences, Lear, um, and 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 Tolkien takes Lear and really integrates a lot of the dynamics, the, the kingship dynamics, the familial dynamics. Um, the intersection of those two, he he integrates those not just in the Lord of the Rings through like the Faramir, Denethor, or the Theoden and Eowyn bit, but all throughout his writing. It's it is it is easy to see traces of Lear in almost every single story that that Tolkien writes. Um, and so while he did hate Shakespeare and did think that you know almost all of the things that Shakespeare wrote were were in some way not helpful culturally, um, he also spent a huge amount of his career reacting to Shakespeare in one way or another, um, and and particularly Midsummer, Macbeth, and Lear. Okay, I'm glad I asked you that because when I tried to do just a little re- research, and by research I mean typing Shakespeare and Tolkien into my Google search <laughs> bar, like you get so many results like Tolkien hates Shakespeare. You can just picture the YouTube thumbnails that probably go along <laughs> with that. Um, and just kind of reading what they were referring to, it this isn't one to one. But it reminds me what people think George Martin thinks about Tolkien. Um, they think when he brings up like Aragorn's tax policy or orc genocide, that's him like saying he hates Tolkien or what he did in his world, where it's just like, I that's really not it. And fa- I mean, Martin will tell you he loves Tolkien, but it's just like, these are like little parts of stories he seized on something he loved. Um, and then he's like, I wish there was more about this and I'll work that into my story or I'll do it the way I envisioned it or the way I wanted it to be. Um, and he kind of just went from there. Um, it does seem like Tolkien has a little more animus to Shakespeare than Martin does to Tolkien. Um, yeah. But I do think it's kind of overblown. And someone like 
criticizing and then building off that criticism into their own work doesn't necessarily mean antagonism to me. Yeah, um, no, no. I, and, and I think that's a really good way of looking at it as well, because like you say, like the kind of YouTube approach to discourse dictates that like not liking something must inherently mean a kind of hatred uh, of like, a, like a, a total and complete rejection of it. Um, but I, I think it's kind of funny because um in some ways, now with less animus on on my side, I think like the way I think about Tolkien dealing with Shakespeare is actually how I occasionally think about my relationship to Tolkien um, in a lot of ways where it's like the the kind of core foundations I find abhorrent. Um, and, and I'm just like spiritually, emotionally, politically, everything against, but there's something um, enchanting about it that makes it kind of hard to look away. And and I think if you think about it in that framework of like, there's this thing that for one reason or another, you can't escape um, and, and you don't like it and you can't escape it. So you just have to deal with it somehow. I think looking at um, Shakespeare, uh, Tolkien's relationship to Shakespeare in, in that way, I think also helps to, to kind of draw out what, which of the influences make sense as actual influences mm-hmm. versus which mm-hmm. is just kind of throwing shit at a wall and hoping it sticks because a lot of the other stuff uh you know the the cursory google search a lot of the blog posts that come up on that are like they're not teenagers but they're like maybe young adults maybe who are just like posting university essays that they've written um are are picking out like elements of tolkien that they're like oh this is obviously shakespeare um that are not obviously shakespeare and like um, they are only obviously Shakespeare if you think that Tolkien is setting out to write an homage to Shakespeare. Whereas if you stop and step back and think, what what do I know of Tolkien and what do I know of the things that make him mad? Um, does this fit into something he of Shakespeare's that he would be responding to? Quite often the answer is no, absolutely not. He just would have ignored it. So the reason we're talking about Shakespeare today is because I remember sitting in the theater uh watching the two towers for the very first time. And when the ants start their last march, I'm like, oh, fuck, this is just like Macbeth. Um, or at least like this is, I feel like it was building off Macbeth because uh, famously in that poem, um, there's a prophecy that says, Macbeth shall never vanquished be until great Burnham Wood to high Dunsinane Hill shall come against him, uh, which I assume most people are familiar with Macbeth is um, the soldiers of Macduff and Malcolm, I believe, um, are the ones that uh, dress themselves in like medieval camouflage, a.k.a. like sticks and leaves and wood on their uh, like exterior. So when um, Macbeth looks out from his castle, it looks like the forest is encroaching on him, but it's really just men camouflaged as shrubbery. Um, And then to see kind of like a a magical or mystical or supernatural version of it, like in the two towers, I was like, Oh, this is super cool. Um, and this was coming like nine months after I had just studied Macbeth in, um, like senior year AP English. So it was like, it was there fresh for the taking for me to connect the two. Um, but I do think this is maybe the strongest Shakespearean connection or the one that most people point their fingers at. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, Macbeth is also, I think the, the kind of interesting one because, um, it is, uh, it's it, the, the Macbeth reference is not filled with animosity. Um, a lot of the other kind of Shakespeare references are filled with animosity, but this one is actually kind of lighthearted in, in taking Macbeth and kind of reshaping it in the way that he does for both the Ents and Eowyn. Um, it's not like he's kind of questioning the, the kind of political underpinnings 
or the, the kind of literary value of what Shakespeare is writing. He's just taking a kind of classic trope that people will get and people will like be able to twig on the spot and playing around with it for the sake of making like a joke. And in one case, literally just an extended linguistic pun. Um, and, and so I think that's also like why it's kind of the clearest because you're not having to slip into the mind of someone uh, who is slightly deranged to, to understand like why this would be a reference. Um, but it's also interesting because I think this is the one place in which like um, Shakespeare's oof kind of kind of matches up, links up clearly with Tolkien's and that like if there are if you like strip it down to the bare the, the very very basics like there are things that both Tolkien and Shakespeare almost always feature in their works and oddly enough one of the things is forests and woods <laughs> and so in a play Macbeth that that Tolkien was like not a fan of generally um uh Shakespeare having dangled this possibility of a moving forest and then reeled it back in to go with the kind of more prosaic approach is like bait for Tolkien. Um, and he obviously takes it and is like, okay, fine. The forest is just li literally fucking walking now. Um, and he also does it in like a kind of fun way. That's a kind of wink to, to, to his like coworkers. And um, that is like, um, that is peak, uh, peak of everything. Peak, peak of, peak of Tolkien interacting mm -hmm. with anyone else. Peak of Tolkien, just writing for himself. Peak of Tolkien writing on Shakespeare. Like it is, this is, this is the height. This is the S tier of these, these Shakespeare references. Yeah. And I think there might be even something to the fact that Sauron, um, who kind of is introduced to us. Um, I mean, he's introduced to us in the movies, like pretty much immediately as a villain, but like at first, you know, Gandalf's like, he'll know what to do. And so he kind of becomes a Macbeth figure because he is someone who seems like noble at the start of say fellowship of the ring or concerning hobbits. Um, but then by the, this time he's clearly a villain. Uh, so uh, there was something that I kind of found simpatico with that. Mm -hmm. Um, the other Macbeth thing that I kind of found overlap in with Lord of the Rings is the Witch King prophecy. Yeah. Um, because with, uh, with Macbeth, I think I don't have the lines in front of me, but part of the pro one of the prophecies from the witches is that he will be, or he can't be slain by anyone of woman born. Yeah. Um, which ended up being to mean someone who was born naturally through the, vaginal canal i didn't know i'd ever say those words on this podcast before um and i, I believe mcduff was born by c-section it was mcduff not malcolm that killed him i think um i really should know this but uh but actually there might be another uh like kind of shakespeare reference going on with the witch king is that right yes uh yeah this one was fun because i hadn't really thought about it until i was doing a little flip through of uh God, was it mythopia's journal someone some journal published a special edition on Tolkien and Shakespeare. Uh, my God, I can't remember which one. This is so bad of me. But I was flipping through and, and they had this on the splash and I was like, holy fuck. Um, but it, in in Lear, when, when King Lear has gone mad, uh, he has a great line, which is, come not between the dragon and his wrath. Um, and now, like, I should preface this with this cadence, this writing cadence, come not between, yada, 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 is not, like, unique to Shakespeare. Um, it is, uh, it is like a, is a way of saying something that like has been said multiple times in various elements of like high literature and high prose before, but it's closeness to, uh, what the witch King says when, uh, he and Eowyn are in their little bitch fight, which is, uh, come not between a 
is it a wraith? I think it's a wraith, he says, coming out between a wraith and his prey. I'm trying to flip through it and I can't find it. That's such horseshit. Anyways, I'm in, pretty in sure. In the movie, like, they say Nazgul. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So I think in the book, it's wraith, he says. I can't remember. Anyways, yeah. So, so like, that is one of these things where it's quite close. And I think also because, like, um, uh, this might be a bit of a reach. If it was a reach, I don't care. Um, Theoden has a partial fit for Lear. Um, he is Lear if Lear had had redemption. Um, and and so Eowyn fits the kind of daughter's uh, part, the the, the daughter's, uh, uh, not trope, but uh, fuck, uh, character type uh, for, for this kind of mm-hmm. Lear metaphor. But where Theoden has his, um, has his ability to kind of come back from, he, he has his redemption arc, um, uh, Lear does not. And so to finish up the kind of Eowyn um, plot to this like Lear one-to-one, um, instead of having it be Lear that is spitting this line, it is the Witch King who I think, you know, whatever, without doing stupid like Freudian uh, like interpretations, like he kind of stands <laughs> in for um, men and the men in her life, her life in a lot of ways. Um, and so having that kind of element there, um, I think also kind of ratchets up the tension in a way that like Eowyn, who as a character was a response written as a response to um, Lady Macbeth and and what Tolkien saw as the kind of kneecapping of Lady Macbeth in, in Macbeth, um, finishing off her sort of high prose, high Shakespearean um, influences by having her high moment be a, a Lear reference is I think really interesting because then this is not actually the like high moment that Tolkien wants us to remember of her. Um, it is actually the later um, part of her story, the the actual genuine climax of her story. Um, and and when that shows up, there is no Shakespeare involved at all. It is it is a totally um, bespoke, I guess you could say, um, approach to telling her story. So so Eowyn's story in some ways is kind of from growing beyond being a Shakespeare reference and defeating a literal Shakespeare reference and then becoming something entirely new. Oh, that's great. Because I haven't really thought about Theoden, but he is kind of like a happy ending slash redemption arc AU for King Lear. Yeah. If you almost make Theodred be like the youngest daughter that he realizes in the end that uh, he should have been championing, but then he was going insane at the time when all that was happening. Uh, there is a little bit of that, and I really appreciate that. Um, what about Denethor, though? Do you, do you see some of the same influences there? Uh, yeah, so yes, like, this is the Lear. This is the Lear in, in, uh, in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and kind of inescapably so, because I think, like, I, I, I think I can't really argue with anyone who says that Denethor is Lear, because that is very much the case. Uh, the thing that I want to, like, quibble with, or just kind of be myself, I guess, about on this one, is that, like, um, Tolkien later expressed regret on how he portrayed Denethor. Um, you know, he made mm-hmm. him too angry and and too kind of far gone. And he thinks that, like, he, he latterly thought that that was, like, a bridge too far um, and and felt like that didn't do justice to the character and to the the the, the people that uh, that character represented. Um, so I, I think Denethor is kind of Lear plus sincere politics and sincere responsibility um lear uh king lear has the the kind of ability to be a melodramatic king a tragic king um because shakespeare's uh plays tend to be lifted above uh the kind of low politics of of rulership um shakespeare is kind of 
occasionally involved or interested in talking about what it means to be a ruler, but but only in a very sort of um, distant sense. And it, it, it's it, it, I'm not trying to like demean Shakespeare at all, but like his his thoughts on the politics of his day tend towards platitudes rather than genuine insight. Um, and so I think Denethor is Lear. Um, you know, he is he is the Mad King Lear. Um, but with Tolkien's ability to kind of um, bring that kind of more salt of the earth uh, political influence to this character and and accidentally grounding uh, grounding this character in the real world, but then also having to balance this need to have this guy usurped for uh, righteously usurped. Um, and I think that that is, I think, the, the kind of important nuance there that sometimes gets lost when, uh, you know, filmmakers like Peter Jackson just go, yes, this is Lear. Proceed from there. Uh, I want to kind of go back to what you were saying a little bit about uh, Eowyn's line about not coming between the Nazgul and his prey and how it isn't necessarily like Shakespeare, um, but because of just like how we're taught and how we think about stuff, like Shakespeare is the first one that comes to mind. Um, I have like a million of those watching these movies, like Grima sitting there like ensorceling Theoden, at least in the movies. Um, it very much reminds me of King Claudius from Hamlet. Like he's literally like kind of pouring poison into the year of the king. Nice. Um, not literal poison, but more just like whatever the hell's going on with Theoden in this movie. There's even a little bit where I can see it as Sauron is poisoning Saruman, like using the Pelantir as like another way that he's poisoning, like not necessarily a king, but someone who's very high and lofty. Um, in the realm of the story. Um, another one that kind of jumps out at me, and I was kind of thinking about this last night as I was refamiliarizing myself with Hamlet, was um, the whole play within a play thing mm -hmm. um, and how it kind of relates to how we talk about like the story about stories or story within stories with Lord of the Rings. Um, and something we'll talk about near the end of Two Towers is literally Sam and Frodo putting themselves into the great stories that they've heard through all their years. Um, and there is something to the play at the end of Act Two of Hamlet where uh, it's like kind of like that art and life kind of reflecting each other. Like he's catching the king's conscious, but he's also seen his mother's reaction to it. Um, and it's kind of like bringing the stories that we like consume for enjoyment um, somehow into the actual narrative and how they matter and how they affect us going forward. Um, there was something I found there and I can't really articulate it right now, but there is something about like that story within a story that I feel there's a similarity between Hamlet and what's going on with Lord of the Rings. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good point as well. And it, it's something I kind of want to uh have you hold on to because that gets into some of the the chat that i think we're going to do at the end of the episode but like this this like ongoing relationship to and like um self-awareness about the type of thing that both shakespeare and tolkien are creating so like shakespeare in his case plays uh and tolkien in his case novels and and that kind of like aggressive self-awareness about uh about that art form i think is such like a key linkage between the two of them um and it, it sounds a bit like pedestrian to be like oh they really you know tolkien really knew that he was writing a novel but but it wasn't just that it was like shakespeare knowing that you were needing to pitch something towards both the popular the genuinely popular and also towards the like um um i don't want to call it radical because it's not radical but like um singular or like innovative um, and, and, and Shakespeare's plays were not like structurally radical, but they were like in terms of language and Tolkien's plots were not radical, but in terms of how they changed how we think about fiction, 
they were genuinely deeply important. And and that kind of linkage, I think, is such like a crucial thing to understanding um, not Tolkien's relationship to Shakespeare, but the relationship of Shakespeare and Tolkien beyond those two as like people. Mm -hmm. And I'll also say, I think part of the reason I like project so much Shakespeare onto the Lord of the Rings, specifically the movies in this case, is because of the general caliber of the cast and their own histories, um, as well as just some of the general dialogue where, like, if someone says air to mean before, like when Theoden says air, the sun rises during his rousing speech at Pelennor Fields, that to me is just like a Shakespearean word, mm. uh, just because of how I was taught. Or when you, you know, you have the apostrophe, so it's like, instead of saying over, you say o'er. Yeah. Um, when, whenever there's like language like that, like, even though it isn't necessarily Shakespearean, it's just like, what, like early modern English or what yeah. I, I, I don't know yeah. my um, stuff, but like when you use that kind of phrasing and that kind of meter and some of the what you're talking about, um, you just kind of think Shakespeare. And then, of course, the cast is filled with people that have just like tons of experience playing Shakespeare, <laughs> uh, Shakespearean characters. I think Ian McKellen, probably most prominently, he's like basically played every major leading role, yep. <laughs> male role of a Shakespeare play. Um, very famously did both uh, Richard II and Richard III. Um, Richard III was also played by Ian Holm, who is our Bilbo. Um, Richard II, also played by Kate Blanchett and mm -hmm. our favorite from Andor, Fiona Shaw. <laughs> um, so you're also seeing like they're very able to like reverse gender a lot of these things. Um, and I think that's something that's, you know, applicable to a lot of Shakespeare plays. We see Kurosawa like gender bends a lot of what's going on with Shakespeare. Um, so I think that's fun. And of course, like during the day of Shakespeare it was all male performers. So it was men performing as women, yada, yada. Um, but I think it's just having that caliber of actor um, with that kind of pedigree and their sense of delivery, like really just gives it kind of that elevated Shakespeare feeling. Yep. And again, that's our own like misconception because Shakespeare wasn't really like a high end, high minded author of his day. He was writing like the MCU <laughs> of his age, or at least like the blockbusters, you know, like the body comedies or the Steven Spielberg war movies. Um, that was him. It's not like he was writing something that was deemed as inaccessible or lofty in his day. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, I'm sure we talked about this before on this podcast and I cannot for the life of me remember when or why. Um, but the fact of so many of the cast members having had either Shakespearean training or experience in performing Shakespeare without the specific training is I think, um, as you say, crucial to making these movies what they are. Um, and, and I think there's kind of something to be said about like, uh, there's just not way, no way of me saying this without sounding like an asshole. But like, I think we are losing something for actors not having training anymore. Um, and, and I think like, it, you know, in the last 10 to 15 years, acting has gone from being something that like um, requires a, a craft that we understand requires training and experience um, to master in, and instead kind of, it has been turned into like something that you are innately born with that you either have or you don't, uh, and, and you can just kind of immediately be good at it, um, without having any sort of experience, knowledge, training of what that craft is. I think we've taken it from a craft to, to kind of a, a, a talent, I suppose. And, and I think we do suffer a lot for that. I think, you know, even now, if you look at the kinds of actors who are still prevailing as, um, incredibly talented actors, 
they all tend to have had some sort of training and or experience with Shakespeare. And, and the reason why I think that the experience with Shakespeare is important is because Shakespeare is a really singular beast in terms of performing. Um, we don't do many, um, many writers of his day. I mean, you might get like the fairy queen out there once in a while, but, mm -hmm. but that kind of work um, is not popular right now. Um, and so if you're going to deal with anything that is um, as complex as, as complex and as foreign um, as Shakespeare, you have to be very fucking good at acting. Um, and you have to be directed by very talented directors. Uh, I, uh, I know we disagree on this, but I think Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet fails for me in a lot of ways because I don't think this is him at his best in terms of Shakespearean acting. Um, he is not taking it beyond a kind of grade school approach to like, we'll read the we'll read the the lines, we'll recite the lines in a in a group as we as in the style of the last Shakespearean actor we heard perform it. Um which is funny because I I love um I, I love quite a few of his, his other uh, uh, Shakespeare adaptations. Which yeah, he's is, done quite a few, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I like a lot of them, but I think Hamlet is the one where it particular it strikes me particularly hard as like this is not good Shakespearean directing. The, the, the Kate Winslet is also kind of struggling, but she's also not like really a Shakespearean actress either. But she's doing her best, um, far better than than I think the the directing of uh, that movie merits. <laughs> but but Kenneth Branagh is nonetheless a, a trained Shakespearean uh, performer. He has the experience in it, um, and I think if you look at a lot of the movies that have come out um, in the 15, 20 years since that one did, um, one of the things that we are we are losing is directing and acting as a craft. Um, and as something that requires a certain um, ability to tackle the challenging things, which means not just sitting in the kind of mindless blockbusters. Um, not that there's anything wrong with mindless blockbusters, but actually, you know what? The guy who articulated this the best, the sentiment the best recently, was Dave Bautista. Um, and he had this great <laughs> interview, I think it was with Variety, where he was like, you know, the the headline that everybody pulled from it was Dave Bautista being like, I don't want to be like The Rock. Um and and that it like that is something he said, but but the the kind of meat around what he said there, which was he wants to try things that are genuinely challenging to him and roles that make him uncomfortable and force him to grow and and mean that he's always having to to kind of rise to a new occasion. Um, those are the roles he's really interested in, and I like that because it treats um it treats acting and performance as a skill that needs to be practiced and honed instead of, oh, I just need to pick a better role next time, or I'm just going to do whatever work comes my way, which is, I think, kind of how we treat a lot of acting now, certainly in cinema. Um, and I, I think it is like the Lord of the Rings was kind of one of the last places, the last movies where we really had that caliber of this is a, this is a skill and you have to work at it. You're not just born with it. Um, and, uh, and um, it's not just about whether or not you look exactly like the book description or look exactly like the like historical figure you're portraying it's about doing something more it's about embodying it and i think like that ability to conquer shakespeare quote unquote conquer um gives actors a leg up when they're dealing with something like the lord of the rings Absolutely. Um, not to be the podcast old once again, but I feel like growing up, it was pretty much standard that actors I was seeing in cinema were Shakespearean trained or had Shakespeare experience, but also were 
uh, trained in song and dance. Um, and outside of Channing Tatum, I just don't know if they still do that anymore, yeah. whether that's still considered a requirement of like coming up through drama schools and whatnot. It might be. It very much might be. And it's just because we have so many Avengers movies. I just don't get to see these people. Uh, maybe, you know, Chris Evans does a great Lear that I've just never seen huh. before. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, who knows? Um, yeah. But you know, we've gone. <laughs> or do you got something else to get nope, in here? I'm good. Okay, because um, we've gone about 50 minutes on Shakespeare um, when we have one of the greatest scenes ever in movie history to talk about. <laughs> so, come you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here and fill me from the crown to the toe, top full of the last march of the X. Yes! <laughs> the Antmoot, Treebeard and his cadre ended up affirming Ant-isolationism. Isolentinism? <laughs> so Mary and Pippin need an Uber back towards the Shire. Their driver just so happens to also be Treebeard, since even Ants need two jobs in this economy. <laughs> Tre Treebeard punches the route into his phone and takes the hobbits west from where they can head north back towards the Shire. Pippin, however, asks Treebeard to take the alternate route. Take us south instead. If we go south, we can slip past Saruman unnoticed. The closer we are to danger, the further we are from harm. It's the last thing he'll expect. Hmm. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. But then, you are very small. Perhaps you're right. Uh, south it is then. Treebeard, trusting in the little guys, turned south, or from his estimation, downhill. Mary's incredulous. They'll be caught for sure, but this time Pippin is the canny one. He suspects otherwise. After a quick check-in with Osgiliath, we find Mary, Pippin, and Treebeard at the southern edges of Fangorn. Treebeard's story of squirrels in his pants is quickly cut off <laughs> by the devastation afoot. The entire neighborhood has been leveled. Treebeard's former friends uprooted and destroyed. It only takes the giant dent a moment to see the cause off in the distance. Isengard. Treebeard lets out a terrible roar, echoing far and deep into the forest bearing his name. The poor little hobbits cover their ears, rightfully in fear of tinnitus. <laughs> and, well, I'll just let the big guy take it from here. My business is with Isengard tonight, with a rock and stone. Yes. 
As Treebeard monologues in classic Shakespearean manner, <laughs> Merry and Pippin see the forest behind them come alive. From amidst the trees come the Ents, dozens and dozens of them, grunting and growling and lurching ever forward towards Sar- Saruman's stronghold. Howard Shore's nature light motif, previously most prominently featured when Gandalf plays with bugs and birds, crescendos here as the Ents take the hobbits to Isengard before cutting away to action elsewhere. We join the attack and media res, several of the Ents already over the walls and wrecking havoc on the industrial fortifications. The orcs may be many, but their weapons are little match for the walking, talking shrubbery, who stomp and whack away enemies with ease. Merry and Pippin get in on the fun too, Randy Johnsoning some fastballs at orc heads from their perch atop Treebeard. There's really not much Saruman can do at this point other than hang out on his balcony and watch in madness. A couple of orcs are able to pull down one ant, and some others have the wherewithal to use fire arrows on another, but frankly, they just aren't doing enough damage. It's a rout. And then Treebeard begins the naval assault. Break the dam! Release the river! We get a slam zoom on Christopher Lee's face, the penultimate time we will see him in these theatrical editions, and he scowls as he watches the tide turn against him. The waters of the River Eisen come flowing down the mountain and wash away the filth of Saruman. The water weaves its way through the caverns and crevices, destroying everything the wizard had built. The muddy waters wash the surface clean, leaving only a blue lagoon in its place. The burning ant even dips his head, and the hobbits brace themselves at Treebeer's command. So these scenes start out with Treebeard ferrying the hobbits to the edge of the forest for a return trip home. You know, taxi to the airport kind of thing. <laughs> Mary's dejected, but Pippin uses up all his efforts to do something he's never done before. Think. He instructs Treebeard to take the route towards Isengard, the unexpected route. Saruman spies would expect hobbits to steer away from Orthanc. His net might be weaker, closer to his keep. It's not unlike the quest to destroy the ring to me, the tactic Sauron does not expect. Stealth and demolition instead of using the ring to lead the armies. Yeah, and I think it's also this um, dredging up a conversation we had in a couple episodes ago um, about the <laughs> about Treebeard being George Bush leading us all blindly into the Iraq war. <laughs> um, but there is something kind of interesting and funny. And again, it's not really something I'd ever twigged until I went back and read one of these like um, really uh, vitriolic forms from 2002 where book fans were just losing their shit over this. Um, but one of the things that was kind of pointed out was like, oh, so it's fine when people get tricked into war, is 
is it? And and once you're tricked into where actually, you know what, this must not have been 2000. This must must have been much later. So people just like not giving up whatever that's fine um but being like oh well wouldn't wasn't this a bit prophetic in like a very grim way that we were all tricked into a war yeah this must have been clear after 2003 anyways um but but you know pippin does do the whole oh treebeard i heard they've got these um what is it aluminum tubes over in isengard we should probably go check that out and see what's up there um and not really something that i'd ever picked up before but like i did spend about an hour laughing when someone pointed that out to me because now i just have to imagine pippin as like dick cheney uh pippin's line there like the closer we are to danger the further we are from harm is either complete nonsense or exceedingly clever depending on your point of view i tend to take the latter it actually gives me the same vibes as bilbo's i know half of you half as well as i'd like and like half of you less than half of what you deserve or whatever it is (laughs) but it's just like kind of that like confusing thing that only makes sense to short kings i'm a big fan of that line so anyways, that's all a stray thought, because what Pippin is actually doing is taking Treebeard to Fangorn Ground Zero, where Saruman uprooted hu- huge swaths of land to feed his war machine. Before we discuss one of the greatest moments ever in cinema, we should probably discuss this adaptation choice, because in the war, or in the books rather, the Ents decide to go to war during the Entmoot. We touched on this during our Entmoot chat a few episodes ago, but, you know, here, Treebeard needs to be shown the body before he can declare against Isengard. Um, so I know we just talked about this and you mentioned it a little bit, but what are your thoughts on this being the proponent to drive the ends to war? Uh, so, uh, um, okay. So I think, like, I think the way that this plays out is easily one of the best scenes in movie history um i think like that that shot of the music crescendoing as all the ants descend on isengard is just fucking unbeatable i don't oh i don't uh, this is so like on on brand but i don't know that it needs to be this way because like i i feel like if you do the end moot the ants are going to war and then like the ants decide at the end moot that they're going to war and then you just kind of cut to the like great crescendo as they're coming out of Fangorn and all of the ends are there like it would still I feel like it would have the same effect for me so I don't know because I also feel like it kind of takes away something that I find kind of fun about the ends which is this like nascent democratic thing they've got going on whereas when it is just Treebeard sees some shit's gone down in Isengard he just like decides gets mad and decides to go without like a vote or anything or a discussion that feels a bit like oh different not great to me undermining something that i quite like about the ends but like the scene itself is so good i'm hard pressed to like actually care yeah no i i think that totally makes sense um unsurprisingly i think it's a good choice for the film (laughs) um a lot in part because it paces out the end stuff and like Treebeard's dialogue specifically um just so we just have more stuff as we talked about when talking about the book like the Treebeard stuff is all pretty much in one chapter um and then we kind of come back to it after isengard's been destroyed um which we'll talk about in a little bit as well but i just think it's more rousing this way because if they like if Treebeard did his big war speech at the Durdingle and like I don't know if I'd feel as moved as they just march into other parts of the forest and are going to emerge later. Um, and I also think some of it is just how this scene looks. Like I think the leveled forest makes for a good visual as uh, as do the ants like kind of responding to the war cry. Um, I'm kind of of the mode that 
both versions work, but I think for a visual medium, what they do here and actually having Treebeard see the body first, um, I think that I think that works for me. I can't really, I don't really view it as a Treebeard invoking unilateralism uh, <laughs> so much as like. It does seem Treebeard and the Ents are generally a little bit disconnected from the world, um, so they don't—they didn't even realize what was happening at their doorstep. Um, so I think I find it a little more forgivable in that sense. Yeah, no, no, I think that's legit. I guess I also wonder if it's like okay, if you keep in the scene of Treebeard seeing the forest flattened, um, but also have the Ents are going. I, I almost wonder if that like kind of not elevates but like complicates the the kind of fact of they're going to war a bit more because like here it feels like a a purely revenge war um and i think in some ways that kind of goes against a bit of the like crux of the lord of the rings to me in some ways because like brodo isn't going to mount doom for revenge um aragorn isn't fighting Sauron and Saruman for revenge. Um, revenge isn't really a motive in these stories, but um, people doing the right thing the first time and then having horrible things happen to them um, after they've chosen to do the right thing, but nevertheless persevering um, uh, and, and, and continuing to do the right thing is a kind of very um, Lord of the Rings kind of way of handling it. So like in my head, if they'd done it like the ants agree to go to war at the end moot and then they see the flattened forest and you still get that tree beard yell that kind of preserves like the the kind of amazing visuals of that scene while also kind of keeping it more in line with the like revenge not being a motivational factor that i think is kind of so central to the books if that makes sense <laughs> yeah it does um, and I think the last thing I'm going to say about this, and I think this is something I want to say for maybe its own episode, perhaps maybe at the end of Return of the King, is I think a lot of this was done so that the hobbits have a more direct input into what happens. Yeah. Like they lead to the chain of events that lead to the sacking of Isengard. Yeah. Um, and this is how they put Merry and Pippin in that driver's seat. And I think this is an ideology, ideology, this is a thought that drives a lot of how the films are created, adapting Lord of the Rings, is making like the four hobbits themselves drive more of the story than they would otherwise um which it has its pluses and minuses but i think that's a very like explicit choice that the filmmakers are making and how they broke the story yeah yeah so now we get to the real question that i want to ask emily is this the last march of the ants the greatest scene of all time like honestly like when people ask me what my favorite movie scene is it's it's this there's like zero hesitation on my part either. <laughs> I, I can't even put it into words. There's just something intangible or ethereal about it. It just makes my brain purr like a cat. Uh, what say you? <laughs> oh, it's so painful because I want to say yes, but I just know it. Like, I know it is and I know it isn't. Like, the pigeon fucking useless part of my brain is like, it's the opening bit of Rogue One uh, when Cashin shoots that guy. That's it for me. But it so isn't. Like, it definitely is this no matter how hard I fight against it. <laughs> it just has everything. It's just like, it's just like, you know, if Peter Jackson is trying to be the sort of culmination of a hundred years of cinematic history and trying to pump up like action movie shit to 11, um, 
then this is what like this is the outcome of that this is in in one short sequence this is that and and uh, unfortunately you really gotta hand it to the guy it fucking whips ass (laughs) for me i think it's this I had no idea this movie or the story had walking, talking trees in it. It's not that like something like that is out of bounds, but it is kind of hokey, especially in 2002, where I didn't think anamorphic trees could be cromulently put on film. And the trees or the ants rather were not really previewed in the film's trailer that we talked about a while ago. Like you can see a quick shot of Treebeard scooping up Mary from earlier in the film, but it's really quick and Treebeard is mostly out of frame. So like when I'm sitting there with my best dudes in December 2002, I basically did the exact face Pippin does when Treebeard's eyes opened. Um, Like, oh, they are going there. They are going to do fucking walking trees in the story, which I just had not expected. Like the story was expanding, not just in its political narrative with the introduction of Rohan and later Gondor, but it was also expanding like the mystical and supernatural elements, which I thought were already kind of set up in the first film. And just like all credulity aspects aside, like making walking and talking trees work on screen was a tall ask at the time. Like the first time anybody had ever done a truly convincing CGI character was one hour ago when Gollum (laughs) first appeared on screen. So like there's just a high initial buy-in with the end stuff for mass theater going audiences in 2002. And then, and then to do it like this, to make Treebeard such a fascinating character, both in narrative and how they brought him to life on screen, to be fully invested in the characters of Merry and Pippin, to get Saruman over as this big bad who's bringing doom and gloom to everything. Like all those hurdles, all those emotional beats, the allusion to Shakespeare, the immaculate score, it all just feels like the most important and grand thing ever depicted in a movie. John Reese Davies perfectly rumbling out <laughs> words like rock and stone and marching to their doom. He's acting almost like his own Greek chorus announcing his final and greatest act. It's just total emotional and narrative payoff. I'm just sitting there like Jurassic Park's Ian Malcolm doing the, he did it, the son of a bitch, <laughs> he, he did it, the son of a bitch did it, just to myself over and over again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think the, like, the number of references to other movies that, that you made in there, I think also kind of solidifies the point for me, right? Um, when, when, when we were still in fellowship and, and we were dealing with Regian uh, and the fellowship leaving Rivendell and, and going into Regian, and there's that great helicopter shot of the fellowship coming over the over the hill with the fellowship horns blaring uh, as they do and it's kind of in slow motion and it's just this like perfect confluence of of like um all of the technical and creative elements of a movie firing on all cylinders i think this is that movie for um for <laughs> this is that moment for this movie and and i and like it it has i think a little bit more oomph behind it because we are now um a movie and a half into this this story we're all like emotionally invested in it in a way that we you know not to say that we weren't emotionally invested in um you know fellowship of the ring midway through fellowship um but it's a different kind of an emotional investment where like mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. seeing a movie for the first time is one thing seeing a movie of that cali- uh, caliber is another thing, but seeing the second movie in that series of that caliber is 
quite a different thing entirely. Um, and so it goes from being sort of emotionally invested in the way that you are for like your standard 90 minute movie to really fucking being in it for the long haul. Um, and this hits right in the middle, right at this high point where like the B real, the B plot here is Helm's Deep, which is the best battle ever put to, to, to film. Um, and then you're cutting back, interspersing it with this, where it almost feels like whatever Mary and Pippin are doing won't be able to reach the highs, but it all, every element of this, the score, the lighting, the design, the, the set design, the prop design, the costume design, the acting, it all comes together so perfectly that you can even take just that seven seconds of that crescendo. And that is like enough to like, I mean, for me at least to like give me goosebumps and be like, oh my God. Um, and it, it really is just like the, the sort of, efficacy, efficiency, um, and sort of, um, craftsmanship of these movies summarized in one go. I really like what you're saying about sequels there, because it reminds me of, uh, my favorite moment in the best sequel of all time and maybe the best movie of all time, the empire strikes back, <laughs> um, which, you know, you can pick out like a hundred different, this is the most iconic moment of The Empire Strikes Back. And I choose none of them. Uh, for me, the moment where Luke's hanging at the bottom of Cloud City and then Force oh, calls to Leia yes. and like this cl closing in zoom on her face and the Force light motif kicking in, like that one shens sends me into like body shakes. Like I yes. just got the COVID vaccine. Like it is, um, I, it's not like, we already blew past like I am your father and I love you. I know uh, we had like the big Hoth and asteroid space stuff, but it's just like this small moment is just perfectly tuned when I'm four hours into this adventure and it just like overcomes you in a way that you can't even really describe. It's it's really something else. Um, I think there is something to that. Um, I really like that point quite a bit. Yeah, I I love it. Um, it's also I think like the there's the. Uh, that umpire moment is also one of my one of my favorite 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 moments, and there's something really quiet about that um, moment in comparison to to this. And I think that's kind of the two different. Like, if you take this kind of blockbuster cinema as its own kind of genre, as its own kind of spectrum, you've got that umpire bit um, on on one end of the spectrum and this on the other um, as these kind of things that could otherwise be understated, but in the right hands are handled so well that they become something so much more than they are just in the, the, the screenplay. Oh, absolutely. Another reason I think the scene bangs is there's just a certain innate coolness of what is happening. And I mean, nature, like kind of coming to life, like, and it's viscerally satisfying for nature to be like, fuck around and find out with <laughs> the proud men and wizards of this world. Um, I think of Sean Connery in 1989's Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, when he absolutely makes up a bullshit quote from Charlemagne, let my armies be the rocks and the trees <laughs> and the birds in the sky. And I think my lizard brain reacts to the last march of the ants much the same way as it does to Henry Ford using the birds to kill Nazi pilots. <laughs> um, it's just satisfying to see nature kind of not put up with bullshit anymore, um, which I really appreciate. And I think that also just uh, feeds into the idea of setting as a character. Um, it kind of goes along with kind of the sympathetic setting discussions we've had in the past. Um, we've, you know, parallelized. That's not a word. Uh, we analogize it to like Beast's Castle and Beauty and the Beast or say the wall defending itself in A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, Fangorn kind of straddles that like it is setting and character, which is kind of fun, um, as opposed to a setting like having 
characteristic traits. Um, it is actually both, which is a really fun way to play with stuff. Yeah. And I think it's also one of these things that I find really interesting um, in terms of the, the kind of Shakespeare connection, because um, I mentioned up top that like um, Tolkien's beef with the Macbeth stuff uh, with Burnham Wood uh, it is that Shakespeare kind of chickened out of having it be something magical. Um, and his beef on that is not just based in personal preference. It's actually based in kind of the ahistoricism of Shakespeare's um, use or deployment of of um, woods in his works. Like when Shakespeare took used woods as a setting, he was using them in a way that was kind of whimsical um, and you know more about like lighthearted mystery where oh anything can happen, affectionate as opposed to the kind of history of the woods in um, in northwestern European literature, um, which is uh, anything can happen, uh, ominous. Um, and, 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 and Tolkien vastly preferred this kind of anything can happen, um, ominous, uh, approach to the woods, um, where, where it was, you know, there are things that live in there that live beyond the control of, of men and the kingdoms of men, uh, not just like in the literal sense of like Gondor and Rohan, but like the, the demand of, of men can only go so far into a forest, um, and beyond, and what exists beyond there is kind of the forest zone thing, the kind of the sense of the, the, the world that you get uh, regrettably in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. But um, Tolkien was really mad about that. He really strongly felt that the that the forest should have been the thing to come from uh, the Burnham Wood to Dunsinan. And, uh, and, and my little my little humble brag here is that uh, over the holidays, uh, I went uh, with my partner and my father to uh, to. Burnham Wood, the Burnham Wood uh, oh, that's so in, cool. in Perthshire. And on the like entrance to the walk to the little pathway to the Burnham Wood, there's a there's a retirement home called Imladris. <laughs> and I was oh, like, wow. yes, these people are my fucking people. Um, <laughs> the Burnham Wood has been like vastly deforested. Thank you, England. Uh, in the 600 years since Macbeth was first performed, uh, Dunsinane Hill, which is actually here, Dunsinane Hill, uh, is still fine it's still a cold fucking hill a uh, hard walk but yeah but anyways so so tolkien was mad about the the fact that like the forest did not take an active part in uh macbeth the resolution of macbeth uh and and decided to have them do um ha decided to give the forest an active part in in his story but he also in so doing added about a bit more of this sort of like intimidation and fear back into the woods um and it's no longer the kind of whimsical woods of midsummer's night dream um it is something that is a part of the world that we all live in and you have to share your space with it but it's also not your fucking pal it's not your fucking pal and it's going to do what it needs to do to survive and that's something that tolkien introduced back in with with the uh, with fangorn um but it's also the, something i think captured really beautifully in this film and i think that sense of menace in the forest um just works really really spectacularly in a way that never feels too cheesy like i think does happen in the murkwood scenes and um in, in, in the hobbit movies i don't think i've ever heard you like on your own volition bring up the hobbit movies without me prodding you so uh congrats <laughs> so next i want to chat about the sound and score when treebeard emerges from the woods and sees the desolation the music stops dead entirely it's basically a moment of silence for the trees cut down by Saruman. It's a few seconds of sadness as Treebeard laments his long-lost friends, but when Treebeard says, Saruman, a flurry of horns and then long, drawn-out strings herald the next musical act. 
After Treebeard trumpets his voice through the forest, first you get Foley work of tree branches moving stiffly at first and then slightly more kinetic. As the other Ents emerge from the wood, the nature leitmotif comes in for its fullest expression all trilogy. This music had previously shown up when Gandalf caught the moth atop Orthanc and Fellowship, and gets some play earlier in the theatric or the extended editions of Two Towers when Merry and Pippin talk about the woods near Buckland. So the music, there is a soprano element voiced by Ben Del Maestro, and a boys' choir does the higher pitch. Both are singing in Entish about the trees waking and going to war. The nature light motif will come back a couple more times. Um, you'll hear it when uh, they replay Gandalf saying, look for my coming at first light on the <laughs> fifth day um, at the Battle of Helm's Deep. And it'll again play when the moth gives Gandalf a drive-by before the evil eagles arrive at the Black Gate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's the, it is in a lot of ways, it's the nature is fighting back the eco-fascist. Uh, it's, it's the, not just the nature light motif, but it's the eco-fascism, nature is healing uh, motif as well. <laughs> and I'm not saying any of this is fascist, but it just aligns very perfectly. I'm genuinely surprised none of those freaks uh, stole this for like their weird, like nature is healing TikToks. Uh, now that I've said that, of course, uh, it will be, it will be manifested into existence, but it feels like kind of an open goal there. So I pulled a little bit of what I believe is the Elvish, but there's way too many parentheses and uh, syllables I do not understand. Emily, can you make sense of what I got here? Uh, Yeah, that looks about right. Uh, It actually looks a bit... It looks a bit weird. Um, I realize it's not compelling, <laughs> compelling audio for our listeners. Um, it looks probably accurate to what they've used in the song. Um, it's just a bit strange because there's like a bit where it's just like Aaron, which just means like forest. So I guess, okay, fine. I guess that's true, but it's weird to have that on a line break of its own. Um, I will absolutely not read this. Rithanen, no, because there's so many parentheticals here. I'm not sure what they're doing with it. Are they, are they trying to handle the evolution of Sindarin? Is this like, are they trying to account for the phases? This is so weird. I I think that is what they're doing. I think what they've actually done is they've used the parentheticals to show what the non-modern, quote-unquote modern iteration of Sindarin would have put in that place grammatically. Yeah, because they've got the S and the T, the differentiation there. Okay, fascinating. Um, the I know we've already said this before, but the the this, the neo center and that was created for these films is really fucking unparalleled. Uh, and just like the amount of work that went into this is really unbelievable for a blockbuster movie or a blo- series of blockbuster movies. Uh, and even just looking at this, trying to decipher it on the fly, I'm I'm just flabbergasted by how good this was. Uh, and how much more credit is owed there i think as part of these these movies (laughs) so one tiny aspect i like in all this is the hobbits and i'm not making a joke there as a short king myself i would never diminish the hobbit size or importance (laughs) there's this quote from the extended edition and i also believe it is in some version of the book but i wasn't um Uh, I was too lazy to go look it up, but it's basically Gandalf saying, a great power has been sleeping here for many long years. The coming of Merry and Pippin will be like the falling of small stones that starts an avalanche in the mountains. As with Frodo and his little guy empowerment story, Merry and Pippin are little guys making the world move. Even a small man can cast a very large shadow. But there's a certain inevitability implied by Gandalf's quote, that once Merry and Pippin started moving, then the rest would follow. An unstoppable butterfly effect, which I think the editing here captures perfectly. 
Yeah, I um, I'm normally like in the fight to the death over like the this movie in particular and kind of predestination, but I'm choosing to interpret this, and I think the way that it was intended, um, as Gandalf being so aware of Merry and Pippin and their personalities and their strengths as as characters that he kind of knew that pairing them up with Treebeard would only lead to this the outcome that he wanted. Not based off of it was always going to be there and it didn't matter who specifically we sent this would just fucking work. But on the basis of Merry and Pippin are who they are and they're being who they are and, and they're, they, them having had the growth and undergone the growth that they have would necessarily lead to this because they are like as important a, a component of the fellowship as Boromir or as Aragorn. Um, and I like thinking of it in that way. Um because I think it's also good because, uh, you know, the the whole Yoda, we are what they grow beyond. I think from here on out, you know, there's a kind of implication that this is Gandalf's use. This is Gandalf's predetermined use for Merry and Pippin. And everything from here on out in his mind is just about either keeping them from getting killed or killing other people. Um, but what we see from Merry and Pippin here on out is them growing beyond what Gandalf's expectations are for them. And so whether it is um, Merry, who should not have been at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, helping to take down the Witch King, or if it is Pippin um, managing to help hold together um, Denethor uh, and and partially the Kingdom of Gondor through his just uh, enormous heart, um, this is... Things that Gandalf did not expect because he underestimated these two hobbits um, and thought they had served their purpose. And they are now from here, um, like Eowyn and the Witch King, um, this is not the kind of climax of their story. This is not their end point. They are only going to grow and become more than we expected to of them from here on out. Yeah, that's so beautifully said. And I'll just reiterate one of our podcast greatest hits. I never have read it as predestination because I just have an agnostic reading of the mil- <laughs> the movies. Uh, so like when Gandalf says, like, I think, you know, Gollum will have some role to play. To me, that's not him like thinking into the like seeing into the future. It's more just like consequentialism. Yeah. Like the, the way like things will happen. Like if the U.S. is going to evade a South American country, we know that country is going to have a right wing di- dictatorship. You don't need like future seeing powers. You just know how that kind of script plays out. But the reason I bring all this is up is because unlike Helm's Deep, we don't actually see every last second from the march of from the march to the battle. We don't see the ants first breach the walls or anything like that. The movie cuts away as Treebeard and his army approaches, but when we return, Isengard is already overrun and basically lost. Most of the ants have already breached the walls and are literally banging on the doors of Orthanc. We don't need to see all the blow-by-blow or have the scripted stages of combat like we discussed last week with Helm's Deep. Because the conclusion was sealed, the second Treebeard said his business was with Isengard as soon as Pippin had drove him there. And we can talk about the final segment now, the aforementioned overrunning of Isengard by the Ents. It's an enjoyable and cathartic action segment, watching some OP heroes trounce pathetic little orcs. As a baseball fan, I'm a huge fan of the fastballs Mary and Pippin are serving up to take out orcs from uh, a top tree beard. Yeah, I, I, I mean, this is, again, like, this is 
ah, God, this, this scene is just so good. But we talked about this in the last episode at Helm's Deep, how, how um, you know, taking the cues from his cues from Army of Darkness, the, the literal army of extras that Peter Jackson employed in this film gives such an enormously beneficial texture to these movies. You really feel like every part of these movies is alive because the people in the background are genuinely there. They're genuinely just being people in the background of a frame. And that gives so much personality to it. And, and that could have been something that was only true of the scenes where they could hire human extras. But I think the thing that is just so fucking mind boggling about these movies is that that level of personality and dynamism is also obvious in the Ent extras. And that I think is all the more impressive because this is an enormous amount of computer graphics work, very difficult rendering that they're having to do. And so they are not just doing it to get it done. They're doing it to do it well. And so all of the ends here, you see different fighting styles, you see different personalities. You know, the one that I'm sure we'll talk about is the, the end who has to douse his head, his uh, a flame head in, in the river once the river mm -hmm. is released. But there's so much personality in all of these ends that it doesn't feel like they've control C, controlled bead, tree beard. It does genuinely feel like a, a an army of its own, an entire people of its own coming together to fight this thing. And, and, and I, I just think it is, God, this movie is just so fucking good. And this scene is just so fucking good. And, and the fact that they put in that level of thought and work to get this scene to being there is like, you know, obviously I came to these movies much later than most, but like, I think we did not know at the time how good we had it in comparison to what we've got now. <laughs> The orc counter defense is very limited. Um, they use some ropes to pull down one ant, like I mentioned, but Treebeard takes those orcs out really quickly when they try to jump on the downed ant with axes. Um, there's the guy who gets lit up, who I like to pretend is quick beam, but like he's smart enough that when the river comes, it's you know time to take a little bath and put that fire out. Like it is like so clearly a lopsided victory. Like even like the. Um, What's it called? The ants are picking up orcs and using them to swat other orcs. Um, it's just incredibly cool. And of course, the last part of all this is when Treebeard orders them to release the river. <laughs> um, and uh, there's so much we can put on this. I think the first thing that jumps to mind is that this is almost like a baptismal. Like, because we talk about the cleansing of Isengard, the washing away of sin. Um, and this is kind of what I imagine is like metaphorically happening here with the release of the river Eisen. Oh my god, yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Because because Gandalf says when he comes back as Gandalf the White, I come back to you now at the turn of the tide, right? And this river being released is literally the tide turning. But it's also good because because Gandalf in Moria goes through this kind of death and rebirth of his own, and that is that is literally bookended by these baptismal um, motifs, the 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 lake uh, on one side and the mirror mirror on the other. Um, but then Gandalf, um, having sent Merry and Pippin forth on this, aware that in some way or another, um, the Merry and Pippin would get the Ents to join the war. He couldn't necessarily know that the dam would be broken in the way that it was, but it's like Gandalf's baptism is, he's kind of almost acting as like a sort of John the Baptist figure here, where he is, well, he is always kind of acting as a John the Baptist figure here because of his relationship to Aragorn. But like he is, he is bringing forth this, this baptismal movement, um, across everywhere and he's got his sort of disciples of his own in Merry and Pippin to, to kind of aid in this. And and I just love that kind of that, um, it, you know, it's, it's not quite Noah's Ark, but it is getting there. And, and that, that sense that like these waters, um, are, 
as connected to the literal waters of the Fords of Eisen from whence they came as they are to the uh, mirror mirror where Gandalf uh, almost made it to, uh, you know, when he was passing through Moria. And and the sense there's this like spiritual as much as physical connectivity between all of Middle Earth um, and in in its fight back in the war against Sauron. You know, I never really put it together, but this movie starts out with Gandalf's baptismal, so to speak. It's him as the gray wizard, like plunging into the bottom depths of Moria, um, and then kind of ends with the existing white wizard, Saruman, getting washed away. So there's kind of like a symmetry there nice. um, and kind of like a bookend with using that water motif and that baptismal motif. Um not to mention The Last Crusade too many times, but it also kind of just vaguely reminds me of when Indy uses the Holy Grail to wash away his dad's scars. Um, there's just something about the way the water flows and foams and bubbles up on Sean Connery's chest that kind of reminds me of the scene. I don't know awesome. why. Um, and I think it is really cool that because um, they when they built the Isengard bigature, they built all the little caverns and like caves around it. Um, or I mean, not all of it, but they did do a fair amount of those pre- of that practically. So washing it was just like really satisfying seeing the way the water flows in and out of the little tunnels and tubes of the set. Um, all of it just looks so good watching like all the orc industry like kind of collapse in on itself, get washed away. Um, all of it is so good. Um, and part of me also thinks there might be a little inspiration for the Reigns of Castamere from A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, as a quick refresher, uh, is the Reigns of Castamere is a song written about Tywin Lannister um, completely killing two houses who rebelled against House Lannister. Um, and the whole point was that um, in the song, it says something like, uh, and the rains wept o'er their halls, but no one was there to hear. And it just sounds like some poetry. But we find out um, in the World of Ice and Fire in 2014 that how Tywin Lannister killed House Rain and House Tarbeck that rebelled against him was that when he had sieged their castle, um, House Rain and House Tarbeck or their members, they went to hide in the gold mines underneath their castle. And then what Tywin did was divert the river um, so that it flooded the caves and killed every last member of the household. Um, so rivers for genocide is a very effective tool. Um, that's all I got. <laughs> that's official podcast endorsement. If you must do a genocide, please try and use a river. <laughs> So one of the things that uh, I've held off on talking about so far this episode is um, the, the the real differences in, in structure um, and appearance between uh, what we see of this in the book versus what we see in the movies. Um, and this is going to be really fun because because um, I think this is so kind of revealing because on the one hand, there the answer is to what is the actual difference between what we see of this in the books versus what we see in the movies is not that much. But my answer, because I'm a fucking crazy person, is actually it's quite a substantial difference between what we see in the books and what we see in the movies. Um, and, and just for a refresher, for those who haven't read the books, um, the the book uh, ends uh, our kind of experience uh, of of the last March of the Ents um, just with Merry and Pippin being aware that the forest is coming to life as they are marching down to Isengard. And they, like Sam at the end of Two Towers, um, the, the subsequent book, book four, 
um, they are looking into the darkness and seeing um, Isengard, you know, Samsung, Samsung, Mount Doom, or Thank. Um, but they are seeing their end goal and knowing that something is coming. It is that um, anticipation that ends their story. And then it is only later that we actually pick up with them. We pick up with Merry and Pippin in, in the chapter Flotsam and Jetsam after Helm's Deep when the 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 crew have arrived at Isengard to parley with Saruman and and we hear bits and pieces of the 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 kind of aftermath and literally see the aftermath um in Isengard, but once it's all done, once it's all done and dusted. Uh, whereas in the movie we see quite a bit more. Um not the full battle itself, but we do actually see the ends at war in a way that we don't in the book. Um, and I think this is significant for, for a lot of reasons. Um, but one of the like kind of key reasons that I think this is significant is because it, it gets at a, a fundamental difference between how the book and the, the movie deal with fact and, and in-universe fact. Um, the movie is very cut and dry about, uh, and this is not a, a knock against it, but the, the movie is very cut and dry about what denotes fact in its story. If you see it on screen, it is true. Um, if it is ever put on screen, it is true. That's why Frodo having a dream about Gandalf at the start of the Two Towers conveys the canonical story of what happens to Gandalf. Um, and we don't need to worry about that. And we don't need to think that 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 Frodo is wrong or Frodo's just uh, imagined something totally different. That, <laughs> that is indeed what happened to, to, to Gandalf. Um, here, um, I think this is kind of reflective, you know, we benefit for it because it's a banging scene, but this is kind of reflective, I think, in some ways of a fear of using word of mouth or secondhand sources to convey fact in this movie. Um, whereas in the books, Mary and Pippin just tell us what we need to know about the battle uh, at Isengard. Um, in the movies, we have to see a really substantial amount. Now, we don't see the actual capture of Saruman. We don't see the, the sort of handing over the keys. But we see enough to know that it is a battle and a battle that is going very, very, very well. Um, and that is enough for the movie to convey to us that this is a factual thing that has happened. Um, and, and that is very different to the book where... And though the book initially sets itself up um, through its framing device as being something where there could be some some sort of gray area to it, you know, it, it could be that this was a history poorly recorded and, and that the facts are not, in fact, the facts and that we should actually. And, and we are sort of reinforced on this that, you know, different people will tell the same story in different ways um, at different times. Um, the book itself is actually quite content to treat the things that Mary and Pippin recount as true. Uh, there's never an aside being like, yeah, that's all bullshit. Um, and, and, and that is kind of fascinating to me because there's a much longer history, I think, in cinema of not having what's on the screen be true. Uh, you know, Rashomon is a, is a really excellent example of this where, um, you know, truth is not dictated by what is visually there. Um, and books, I think by contrast, have to be a little cagier about how much they say don't do don't trust what we're actually saying because it's a lot harder to reconcile these things in writing um, and so to see this difference this divergence in how each story each iteration handles this question of what do we see of the battle and how do we know that the battle happened in earnest i think is, is a really interesting divergence between the two yeah that's just really funny because as we talked about just no, 10 minutes ago, I had flagged this as the movie not really showing us the battle of I or Isengard, whereas you have a completely different... I think both are right. I think you're completely right. Um, I think part of this is also like, 
if I had heard there was an entire tree wizard battle scene and I didn't see it, I would be very upset. It's like um, that Kevin Garnett meme from Uncut Gems is like, why would you show it to me if I can't have it? Um, <laughs> so I would be very upset if I had not seen it. But no, I think everything you're saying is right. I think we talked a little bit about this with um, Boromir as well. Um, when Boromir is killed very explicitly on screen, whereas he literally dies in between books um, and we kind of have to piece together and Aragorn has to witness his last couple words um, before we can really figure out what actually happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But well, I, and, and I guess the thing is like movies aren't subtle, right? Like, and they don't prep your, like they don't really prime your imagination. I think like we always feel really strongly about movies like this or about like Star Wars in particular because they get our imaginations going, but that's not really how movies work. And usually when we talk about movies getting our imaginations running, we're usually talking about like the mechanics of movie making. So like people who get really into like stop motion or, you know, behind the scenes, like uh, CG stuff. That's usually how movies get us kind of thinking. Um, and so there's not really a point in in most movies where you're asked to imagine action. Um, you know, they don't do that. They will just show you the flashback. Books are all precipitated on you having an imagination to understand what is going on in the plot, because visually all you are seeing is text. You're not actually seeing images. Um, and so it is up to you to kind of fill in the gaps there. And so you are much better primed, I think, in a book to be told this thing happened uh, and here's all you need to know about it. And then to imagine it, then you are in something like a movie where you, you're kind of in the, in the, the precedent has been set that you will be shown things. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that just broadly affects all adaptation because um, a key part of writing a narrative story is the point of view um, and you have a lot more options with that you can do like unreliable narrators or through a certain character's point of view in film but it's definitely something that's much easier to generally communicate in like text um, whereas when you have the camera is presumed to be objective right that's what we've talked about on here yeah um, so we're seeing like what actually happened um, this is something that comes up a lot with uh, Game of Thrones too because those books are written entirely from character point of views there is no omniscience really um, so like it is weird kind of watching a version of the story even when they like cue completely to the letter of the book that it's still like kind of quote unquote more objective than what I had, you know, read on page before. Um, so it is like just kind of a problem that's kind of inherent to it, but I do like that, that there are different ways to approach it. I think we even posited that you can frame these movies as almost entirely from Galadriel's point of view, <laughs> given, given her like narrative quality and the general unchallenged view of the elves and the wizards. Um, like, I think that all kind of very much lines up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's also interesting because, um, you know, one of the things that I found really funny around uh, the discourse around uh, a certain excellent show and or is that there are lots of moments in that show where the show's not going to outright tell you that something someone is saying is wrong or bullshit or whatever. But it's it is true that whatever X character is saying is wrong or whatever Y character is saying is bullshit. Um, and it is true. And you just have to be able to pick up on it like with your own bullshit monitor. And one of the things that I found quite funny is l looking at the kind of wider discourse um, and seeing how many people with these things, um, you know, either because they just like generally don't have a good sort of bullshit monitor or because they're just like easily lied to, but it is kind of this, this, this interesting experience experiment almost and, and how people really badly misunderstand the point of, of shows or of movies because they're not primed to, you know, doubt their sources. They're not primed to mm -hmm. trust that the camera isn't objective. 
in in the same way that god i hope they are with writing I'm, the longer i say this i realize it's like fucking tiktokers so maybe they just have no sense of credibility at all but like if that kind of um if you're not willing to consider that the camera couldn't could be subjective for even a little bit like there are plot points that you could miss in other movies not in this one um but it is just like i wonder if it is kind of like a uh, not like a, I don't think this movie caused this directly, but I wonder if this is kind of part of a wider trend of like that camera objectivity and not really having a sense of there could be multiple interpretations to what happened. There's one interpretation to what happened and it, it's the interpretation the camera has presented you with. Yeah, um, I don't want to get too far into spoilers, but there is actually a moment in Ryan Johnson's new film, Glass Onion, where they show you something <laughs> that had already happened in the film, but they show you a different version of it. But you, as the audience, just accepts the new version they showed you as truth until later on when Benoit Blanc points out that, no, he just put that in our mind by saying that's what happened. <laughs> um, and I think it had a little bit of fun with that. But because it's a very, very new movie, I don't want to go any further into details. <laughs> So before we sign off today, we would like to thank our $10 patrons and a couple of our $5 patrons. Just a reminder, if you sign up at the $5 or $10 level, we will give you a Middle Earth name, uh, which is best if you hop into our Discord and you can talk with Emily about things you would like to be captured in your Middle Earth name. And then we will read them on air. $10 patrons we will read all the time. And $5 patrons we will read on an ongoing basis. So first, we would like to thank Johnny Flores Jr., a.k.a. Lothaman Palinque. And Ed the Revelator, a.k.a. Silent Spider, Guardian of Carathongol. Maddie Hugh, a.k.a. Idrenor of Kolkertad. Nailed it. <laughs> Matthew Abbott, <laughs> also known as Eranmo Menyatar. Zach Newman, a.k.a. Lakwe Melme. Yep. <laughs> Sal Quindil, also known as Cam Lewis. And just giving a little shout out to Jonathan DeHaan. Uh, we are still working on your name, uh, but we acknowledge you as a $10 patron. And over at the $5 level, we'd like to thank our friend Sean, a.k.a. Sean the Rascal of Rivendale. <laughs> and uh, Elenoma of Venhatola. And I feel like I should explain. I'm not just laughing. Sorry, this is Elise. I'm not just laughing at Elise's name. I'm laughing because Venhatola is my uh, long uh, attempted, long many drafted version <laughs> <laughs> of New Jersey. So if you wanted to know how the elves would say New Jersey, there you are. It's Venatola. Anyways, thank you, Elise, for letting me do that. <laughs> it's funny because it actually reminds me of the word Ayatola. Um, <laughs> it, it, uh, so, um, Elise, I uh, support your uh, Ayatola like grasp for power or something like that. <laughs> And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get early access to episodes and exclusive bonus content, including a Patreon-exclusive monthly episode. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be teaching Quick Beam how to make a Molotov cocktail. <laughs> uh, toasting a pint or a cocktail to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka Throglier and Drithion, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, 
my captain, my king. <laughs>